And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I remember very well in the 1970s when Watergate hearings were underway, and Americans became familiar with figures like Howard Baker and and Sam Irvin, the senators who led that investigation, and even Fred Thompson, who was a young staff lawyer. Adam Schiff is a name that is becoming more and more familiar to Americans. As the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, he's become a central figure in the probe of Russia's interference in our election uh, and possible collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians in that pursuit. But he's also uh, a leading spokesman in the Congress on national security issues writ large. Congressman Schiff came by the Institute of Politics the other day, and we had a chance to sit down and talk about his life, his career, and this very interesting probe that shows no signs of letting up. Adam Schiff, welcome. Good to see you here and at the Institute of Politics. Thank you. It's great to be with you. We, uh, I have to say that um, I hope in the next so many minutes that we can answer the question that so many Americans have asked themselves over the last three months, which is, who the heck is Adam Schiff? (laughs) Because now you've become this big, uh, significant figure because of events uh, in Washington. A lot of us remember you as a a Democratic uh, voice on national security issues uh, over the last many years. But uh, I want to get a sense of uh, who you are and where you came from. And part of it is that you and I have s- s- uh, similar roots. Now, my father was an immigrant, came from Eastern Europe uh, during the pogroms. I guess your family on both sides uh, came from, from there as well. Yes. Uh, my folks are from Boston, but uh, my grandfather's father uh, was born in London. His older siblings were all born in Lithuania. Uh, so our family originates in Lithuania, uh, Poland, Russia, um, and as my father likes to say very proudly, uh, from the uh, shtetl uh, to mm-hmm. the Congress in three generations, he's very proud of that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, uh, I was always very, very aware of that. You know, my father came here when he was 12 years old from Eastern Europe, and I, I went back to uh, Russia— in uh, in uh, 2009 with President Obama and stood there, as you have, and uh, amid a group of uh, visiting officials as they played our national anthem. It was on the eve of what would have been my father's 99th birthday, and I thought, incredible story, because they came to America thinking this was a place of opportunity and freedom, and to come back as an aide to the president was kind of an affirmation of that faith. It is incredible, and I remember years ago going back to Lithuania, for me the first time, and calling my grandparents and my great-uncle to find out about the small towns that the family came from and meeting some resistance. Uh, Why would you want to go back there? We did our best to get out of there, Uh, but I was fascinated to walk the streets that I knew my great-grandparents had walked and... uh, and I was able to, you know, locate where the old synagogues used to be. One was now a basketball court, and uh, the other was a, essentially a machinist shop. 
uh, but to go walk down those small country roads uh, and know that these were the same streets that my ancestors played on or worshipped at uh, was really quite moving. I have to admit it, it's sacrilegious, I know, but there were moments when I was a kid when I wished that the synagogue were a basketball court on Saturday mornings, which <laughs> I wanted to be out on the basketball court. Uh, but yeah, my dad, he, he never talked about he he really never talked about his experience, and I learned only after he died just how ghastly uh, it was uh, during that period. So you can understand why, uh, f- you know, our our folks never said, "Do you want you go back and take a look around?" They had such bad memories. So on this immigration issue, uh, when uh, the big debate came up over the travel ban and this issue of Syrian immigration. How much does your background and your awareness of it feed into your feelings about it? Well, quite a lot. In fact, uh, I had one of those uh, very well-attended town halls recently where we took over the uh, largest classroom at Glendale College, which seats about 400, had an overflow room of about 1,000, both of which were filled. Uh, and then we had people listening uh, via live stream in their cars in the parking lot. So you're drawing well these days. Definitely drawing well. <laughs> uh, but I called one of my cousins because I wanted to know a little more that I could use in my introduction about our own family. And uh, I have a cousin who was on one of the last, if not the last, transports out. He was a, on the kinder transport. Uh, he had grown up in Germany and... Uh, his mother put his older sister on the train and then sometime later put him on the train. Mm. Uh, and he was essentially raised in England uh, and then came to the United States. And I wanted to know more about that experience to share that. Uh, and I have to say that, you know, as powerful as that kind of experience was for me, what was most powerful were some of the panelists that we had that shared similar but much more contemporary stories Uh, We were all very moved, in fact, by one of the uh, representatives of HIAS, one of the uh, immigration agencies that was working with an Iraqi family. And this family was turned away at the airport uh, in Baghdad, so they didn't get to the United States during that uh, period when the immigration ban was in effect. And they went back to their home uh, and for four days refused to unpack their bags because that would mean accepting that they were not going to have the future, that they had sold everything to make uh, uh, the, the finances possible and their whole you know, future ahead of them. So they, they, for four days they sat there with their bags packed at home and waited for something to happen. And, uh, and the, the patriarch of that family said to this highest representative, is there anybody out there who cares what happens to us? Uh, and when that, the ban was lifted, when the court enjoined it, and he, was a, he and his family could come to the United States, uh, he explained how when he turned on the television and saw those thousands and thousands of people at airports throughout the United States, he realized, yes, there are people standing up for me. And uh, it was a very powerful moment. Uh, we had a representative as well from the Muslim Public Affairs Council, who, you know, with tears in her eyes, talked about how, you know, both awful this period has been, but also how wonderful the community reaction has been, that people have never gone more out of their way to make sure that she and others uh, in the uh, Muslim Public Affairs Council understood that the community welcomed them. And that was 
You know, I have to it's say that was heartwarming. It's kind of interesting because every action creates a reaction, and um, some of the some of the more um, uh, some would say objectionable. I would. Uh, measures that have been taken by the administration also have reinvigorated civil ins- institutions and uh, uh, public awareness and activism in, in a way that we haven't seen uh, in a long time. And of course, the strength of our democracy isn't just in our government institutions, but it's in our civil institutions. So what the legal community did in the face of that uh, travel ban and so on lawyers racing out to the airports and so on. Pretty impressive. It really was. And you're absolutely right. I think for many of us uh, that have, uh, you know, looked with grave concern and often despair at the events since Election Day, um, the one thing that's given me real optimism that we will survive this test of our democracy is the fact that people have become so engaged, uh, not only at town halls, but in taking to the streets and writing op-eds and, and getting involved, people who had never been involved before. And that is really the strength of our civil society. It's uh, one and, of the reasons why your town halls are overflowing now. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, it, it addresses one of the most, I think, challenging uh, parts of where we are uh, in our governance, and that is we have survived a broken Congress for some time. We're a very dysfunctional Congress and have been for most of the last decade we now have a dysfunctional Congress and a dysfunctional administration. Uh, and that really shakes the foundations of our republic. Um, but uh, but that, that activist uh, core in the country that um, will speak out when a co-equal branch of government is denigrated or the press is viewed as the enemy of the people, um, that gives me great hope that we are resilient enough that we will come through this. You didn't mention the third branch. What about the courts? What was your reaction to uh, the Senate, uh, the Senate action on the Supreme Court, the Gorsuch nomination, and doing away with a filibuster there? Well, I think it's a great travesty that was set in motion uh, when they deprived President Obama of even a hearing and a vote uh, on his nominee. Well, there's this big debate, you know, back and forth, and you've heard it and you've participated in it, because then the uh, Republican response to that is, well, Harry Reid in 2013 did away with a filibuster on um, on these uh, lower court uh, judicial appointments. Uh, so uh, he he was the one who set in motion. That in turn brings up the argument that two thirds of the filibusters on judicial appointments took place during the Obama years, and we go on and on like this. It seems like sort of a vicious circle. Well, it is, and it's gotten that much more vicious. Uh, for some years, uh, I've been involved and in, uh, established a. Uh, House caucus on the judiciary to try to improve relationship uh, the relationships between the Congress and the courts. Um, we obviously haven't made much progress, but one of the things that uh, we were lobbying for was a commitment in the Senate to have an up or down vote within 90 days on a court of appeals or district court nominee. Um, and that would be obviously regardless of who was in the majority, regardless who the president was, Somehow adopting that kind of framework yeah. uh, would make, I think, an infinite amount of sense. But I do think that the Supreme Court is different. And in my view, the nuclear option was triggered when Mitch McConnell uh, said he would not allow uh, a hearing or a vote on Merrick Garland. And 
from my point of view, had the Democrats done anything less than what they did, uh, then it would have ratified this stratagem by the GOP, and we would see it again. Uh, so, yes, it does lend itself to an endless tit-for-tat, uh, but I don't think the Democrats had any choice. Uh, you know, as I said at the time, um, when Mitch McConnell deprived Garland of a hearing, that was the nuclear option. The rest has been fallout. Uh, and I really believe that. I don't know how we get back uh, on track, uh, but uh, the Senate is now looking more and more like the House, and I don't mean that as a compliment. Uh, spoken as one who's been there for quite a while. Um <laughs> Let, let, let's return to your own story. You mentioned you grew up in Massachusetts. Was politics a big deal in your home? Was this something that was uh, discussed? What fired your interest in all of this? You know, I wouldn't say that uh, we were the kind of family that debated political happenings around the kitchen table all the time. What did your folks do? Uh, my father, as he liked to describe, was in the rag business, meaning he was in the clothing business. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom for many years. And then when we were older, she became a real estate agent uh, once we had moved west. But uh, my father came from a very Democratic family. My mother came from a very Republican family. Well, that probably prepared you for life in the House, huh? Uh, you know, it, it taught me a lot of valuable things, including that uh, neither party had a monopoly on good judgment all the time. Uh, I do remember uh, discovering uh, something when I first ran for office that surprised me, though, um, given the cocoon I had grown up in which is one thing my parents all agreed on, and their, their parents, because they were descended from Democrats or Republicans, uh, is they all agreed on the Roosevelts, uh, and uh, that, that Franklin Roosevelt was this giant and enormously positive uh, force for the country. So I grew up thinking that was something that bridged the partisan divide, only to learn years later that was not necessarily true. Yeah. And I, I remember I was running for the state senate in California, and— uh, I had uh, coffee with a very conservative uh, city council member, Republican city council member named Ginger Bremberg, who was about four foot eight and just full of fire. And uh, it was after the primary, and someone had told me, and I don't know why I thought this was significant or noteworthy or even interesting, but they told me that they had voted for me in the primary and that they were old enough to have voted for Franklin Roosevelt. And I said, you know, that's kind of a neat connection with history that someone in the same lifetime could have voted for me and Franklin Roosevelt. And I remember Ginger telling me, Adam, that is not a story I would repeat in Glendale. There are a lot of people here who are still angry at the Roosevelts. And she used a different word than angry. Yeah. And uh, I could tell she might be one of them. And uh, this was the first thing that I had that, uh, okay, maybe my folks were not the perfect bellwether of even uh, bipartisan agreement. You, uh, you went to law school. I guess they wanted you to go to medical school and you went to law school. Uh, what what made you decide to do that? Well, I remember uh, I was the consummate procrastinator in college and uh, I was interested in medicine. I was interested in, in public policy. And uh, I remember where I was standing in the house when I told my parents that I was going to go to law school. And and the way I explained it was uh, when I pick up Time magazine, I don't flip to the what's new in the law section. Uh, I'm sorry, what's new in medicine section, even though I think medicine would be very interesting and satisfying. I, I want to read about what's going on in the world. And uh, it didn't occur to me until I was a first-year law student. I never flipped to the what's new in the law section either. <laughs> uh, but uh, my father was less than enthusiastic. Uh, his response uh, when I said that was, well, you tell me you're interested in the law, and I would think that certain aspects of corporate law would be fascinating. 
but you tell me you're interested in politics, that just makes me nauseous. <laughs> um, but I'll have you know, he has come around. Yeah. Well, I guess he had to. <laughs> Were you, uh, you grew up about in the same era that I did uh, during the Kennedy era, and you were in Massachusetts. How big a element of that uh, was your political awakening? You know, it was a very big influence. And, and uh, you know, I was certainly very young, uh, very, very young during John Kennedy's uh, uh, short, uh, tragically short time in office. Um, a little less young with Robert Kennedy during his campaign. But I do think the whole uh, Kennedy ethic of service to government and uh, the idealism that they inspired uh, really had an impact on me. And uh, when I went off to college, it was pictures of Ken the Kennedys and Martin Luther King that I had on my walls. And it was clearly very, uh, very much an influence. Um, I, I, it's hard to grow up there without it seeping in through the ether. Uh, but that whole idea that it was a noble calling, uh, that uh, we had an obligation to do what we can, not only for the country, but for the next generation, was something that has always really inspired me. It's kind of a, it, it's taken a beating uh, that, uh, that was a national ethic, but we were just 15 years after World War II when JFK ran for president. He was a veteran. Most people of that generation were uh, veterans of the war and had seen America triumph over fascism. It's a more complicated picture today. Uh, and there's been a, many decades of uh, counter uh, assault on, on, on the notion of government as a force for good, on public service, and so on. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and I remember thinking uh, during the Obama administration what a tragedy it was that uh, – you know, people, you know, on the Democratic side of things had Kennedy as an inspiration and had Obama as, as an inspiration. People on the more conservative side had Ronald Reagan as inspiration. But there were reasons for young people to get involved in politics and think that this was a noble calling. But at, at some point in the last decade, uh, the kind of scorched earth politics we've seen practiced has torn all that down. Uh, and there's, you know, very little positive inspiration for people to get involved, which is a terrible tragedy. You know, we do see this tremendous activism uh, right now, but a lot of the activism is activism because they don't like this president and don't like what he's doing. Um, it reminds me a bit of when I was first running for Congress in 2000, and uh, I had someone call me up who I'd always sought their support when I was a state senator and could never get a call back. And now he was calling me and wanted to help me. And said, uh, when we got together, um, you know, I've never gotten involved in a campaign for a negative reason before, but I can't stand your opponent, and I want to help you. Yeah. And I, I remember— You ran against a guy who was sort of the point man on the Clinton impeachment, uh, Jim He Rogan. was. He was. And uh, I remember saying to, to this gentleman, uh, well, I hope when you get to know me better, you, have, you find you have a positive <laughs> reason as well, but I will take what I can get. Uh, right now, you know, much of the activism is very much directed— against the administration. Uh, and I would love to see, uh, you know, a change where uh, you have the same passion and activism about doing things in a very positive, proactive way. Uh, and certainly that motivates a, a lot of what people are doing, but a lot of it is motivated. Can we recapture that? Uh, you know, I hope for our country's future that we can. Um, there are a lot of things that have gotten us to this really destructive place. Uh, some of it is how we finance our campaigns. Some of it is, is the degree to which media is now so stratified 
Uh, I remember when I was in college rushing home to my dormitory to watch Walter Cronkite's last broadcast. Um, there aren't many people that would draw anyone to rush home to watch anyone's last broadcast anymore. Um, you know, people that are conservative tuned to one set of media outlets, people who are liberal tuned to others. Uh, and now with the democratization of information on the internet, you can choose these microcosms to live in. You can live in the the Pizzagate child predatory pizza parlor uh, niche. And millions if you want. did. And millions did, and uh, and so we don't get exposed to contrary ideas the way we used to. Uh, it, it's had an enormously polarizing effect, and uh, it's hard to unring that bell. Uh, it's much easier to diagnose than to fix, but we have to find a way uh, to, you know, reestablish that uh, that belief in government as a force for good. Uh, doesn't mean that government should do everything; it shouldn't. But uh, but that public service in and of itself can be a noble calling. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Congressman Adam Schiff. So you went to Los Angeles after uh, law school. What, what brought you there? Well, I went to clerk for a wonderful judge uh, on the federal district court. Matt Byrne was his name. Uh, wonderfully... A bright judge uh, uh, with a kind of quintessential Irish charm about him. Uh, and even though I didn't realize it at the time, I think um, he's really been a model uh, to me in the way that he conducted himself on the bench, the way he treated uh, witnesses with respect, the way he was tough on counsel, but nonetheless, I think, eminently fair. I didn't have a political mentor the way many did, and I think I have found myself thinking back about how he conducted himself on the bench is a really good example. You did some mentoring then, too. I read somewhere at, at, for big brothers and big sisters of greater uh, Los Angeles, and I, I, I guess this had a, an impact on you as well. Uh, absolutely. I was paired uh, when I first got to L.A. and got myself settled. I, I went to big brothers and was matched with a wonderful, very young child at the time uh, of seven uh, named David. And he uh, and I would become uh, quite literally family. And uh, and I couldn't be more proud of him. He's uh, done phenomenally what well. What were his circumstances back then? Uh, he was being raised by a single mom. Uh, he's African-American, uh, very bright, precocious uh, kid. Uh, I remember what attracted to me to him because when you go to Big Brothers, you're given three applications, and you try to pick one that's a good fit. And uh, he was asked in this application, and he filled it out at age five. So he was on the wait list for a couple of years by the time I walked into the office. Um, if you could name three things you would wish for, what would they be? Uh, and he wished for a big brother, a puppy, and a beautiful world. Uh, and I thought, you know, what five-year-old kid is going to use a precious wish for a beautiful world? I know I certainly would not have. Yeah. Uh, but that turned out to be very true to form, and it was a, a, a fabulous fit. And uh, we continue to see each other. What's uh, he doing now? Uh, he is a, a screenwriter and uh, playwright, and uh, he just uh, had one of his plays performed. It was quite uh, fantastic, called Watching O.J., about the O.J. Simpson trial. But uh, he uh, go, went on to graduate from Yale and the SC Film School, and uh, and now we find our worlds colliding because Hollywood is a part of my district, uh, yeah. quite literally. You've got the sign in your district, right? The big Hollywood sign? I do. I do. Yeah. Um, I always uh, tease my uh, constituents that 
uh, it's good to spend some time with celebrities uh, as an elected official because you realize what true celebrity is, and it's not us. <laughs> uh, when people are trampling you for Pee Wee Herman's autograph, you know where you are in the pecking order. Although it's a weird thing, you know, you go to those White House correspondence dinners and the Hollywood people are there. It's like this sort of weird synergy between two, honestly, pretty narcissistic communities. You go from one uh, narcissistic community to another. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, too, when you are when you hang out in those kind of events with entertainers. They want to talk politics, and we want to talk entertainment. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's the strangest thing. So uh, you, went, you became a prosecutor. Why did you choose? You could have done any number of things in the law. Why did you choose the prosecutors of U.S. Attorney's Office? When I was in law school, I took a fabulous litigation workshop, and a couple of the professors were uh, assistant U.S. attorneys from Los Angeles, and uh, it seemed to me the work they were doing was really interesting and challenging, and, uh, and so that I very quickly gravitated to wanting to do that, and it was a fantastic experience. Uh, there's a lot of camaraderie in the office. Uh, you have the time to really develop your cases, and um, it's, I think, among the best professional experiences uh, of any kind in the practice of law. And you had one particularly uh, well-known case that seems pretty germane to what you're doing uh, today, and that was a case involving a, 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 a uh, someone who was essentially a, a Russian agent— uh, uh, a uh, former FBI agent who had who had been turned. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, it does uh, feel like things have come full circle since my days in the U.S. Attorney's. Uh, but this was a case involving a guy named Richard Miller, who was a an FBI agent uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, he was indicted for uh, passing classified information to the Soviets in a sex for secrets case involving a uh, Soviet uh, asset named Svetlana Gorodnikova. And uh, I learned a lot in that case about uh, Soviet, then Soviet, but Russian tradecraft, uh, who they looked for to target, how they recruited them, uh, what information they were interested in obtaining. And, uh, and I worked extensively with the FBI uh, because even though it was the first FBI agent who'd ever been indicted for espionage, it was the FBI that was also doing the investigation and working with me in the prosecution. So I, I must have worked with close to 100 agents on the case developed an enormous respect uh, for the Bureau, uh, their professionalism, uh, their, their the thorough nature of the work that they did. Uh, and I've, I've had that respect for them ever since that day. Uh, so it's uh, not without some feeling of deja vu that I'm once again working with the FBI involving the Russians, uh, although obviously in a very different context. And are some of the... Uh, the, uh, the uh Techniques that you see uh, employed by the Russians uh, today, reminiscent of what you saw then? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, some things about how the Russian intelligence services operate have not changed at all. Um, now they have a lot uh, different tools uh, than they did back in the day, uh, the cyber tool being a, the most significant. Uh, but, you know, the same kind of uh, approaches to compromising people and identifying likely targets uh, that were true then are still true. The, I, I'm not going to ask you about uh, whether you've seen examples of the sex for secrets thing. I know everybody wants me to ask you that question. <laughs> I, I know you're not going to answer it, right? That's right. Um, we'll get back to current events. Uh, but I, I want to ask you uh, about why you left 
the prosecutor's office and why you decided to go into politics other than to irritate your father. <laughs> well, but that is, that's a good reason in itself. Though. Yes. Uh, no, I, I made many decisions <laughs> in my life on, the, on, that, on those kinds of uh, bases. But. Uh, well, you know, when I was uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I had a very good friend, uh, Tom Umberg, who ran for the legislature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I saw the kind of work uh, that he was doing and— I really hadn't thought much ahead of what I was going to do when I left the prosecutor's office. Um, but one of the things that attracted me to the legislature was, uh, as a prosecutor, by the time you're given the case, the crime has generally already been committed, and you're left uh, investigating and seeking justice. And um, But working in the legislature, you had a chance to work proactively on some of the root causes of crime uh, before the cases came to being. And so I was very interested in working on juvenile justice issues and uh, uh, economic issues. Uh, so I ran for the legislature and lost. Uh, ran yeah, again. a couple of times, I, right? Uh, yes, I ran again and lost. You must have really wanted to serve. <laughs> well, you know, as or my, else you as, just can't take no for an answer. As my father likes to say, "What's the point of being a chef if you can't be stubborn?" <laughs> uh, so I now, were you married by then? Uh, you know, the first time I ran, um, I was uh, I had a girlfriend. The second time I ra- ran, she was my fiance, and the third time I ran, she was my wife. No, Ken, she went through those two races and stuck with you. Huh? I knew she was a. Keeper. You should share just for. I mean, our listeners should know. Tell us what your wife's name is. Uh, my wife is named Eve, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I'll tell you what. Now, of the, do you have towels that say Adam and Eve? We do not. <laughs> But I do remember one of those early campaigns uh, getting a call from a potential constituent who had gotten my flyer in the mail and had a picture of Eve and I and uh, uh, with a caption, Adam, with his fiance Eve. And he leaves me a voicemail, which I've saved to this day because it's so worthy of treasuring. Um, uh, I received your flyer in the mail. Um, this is a very serious undertaking. I hope you know what you're getting into. And here I, I think he's talking about my running for the legislature. But then he goes on to say, because let me tell you something, I've been married for almost 35 years, and it's no picnic. Uh-huh. And there's a long pause, and then he repeats, no picnic. Uh-huh. And uh, so my wife and I have treasured this recording, and every anniversary we go out to dinner, we're like, okay, we made it another year, but it's no picnic. <laughs> so he didn't, uh, he didn't go on to talk about how there are a lot of bad apples in politics. That wasn't part no, of it. No, that was not. He should have mm-hmm. called me. I could have helped him with this, uh, <laughs> this voicemail. So talk to me a little bit about California politics. Um, because you were actually, you ran during interesting, uh, in your many attempts to get into the legislature. One of them was in 1994. And there was a forerunner in, in California of a, some of what we're seeing in our national politics today, because Proposition 187 was, uh, was on the ballot uh, at that time. And uh, a very, very tough anti-immigration uh, proposition that ultimately was thrown out. Uh, by the courts. People think of California as a very progressive state, but it gave birth to that and Proposition 13, which was a property tax cap that really hobbled government. Ronald Reagan sprung from California. Uh, Talk a little bit about California politics and particularly 187. Yeah, you know, I remember it vividly because that year I was running for the state assembly and I walked precincts for about nine months, and I was out there just about every day uh, walking the streets of Burbank and Glendale, and about nine months out, almost no one asked me about immigration. 
Uh, and then six months out, I started getting a lot of questions. Three months out, that was the only thing people were asking. Our governor at the time, Pete Wilson, had these very inflammatory ads uh, showing hordes of people coming across the border. Uh, and I had the sensation of standing on a railroad track and looking down and seeing my feet tied to the track. I was against Prop 187, and I could see the speeding train coming my way, and I realized this thing is going to run right over me. And, of course, it did. And I remember uh, a couple weeks before the election speaking at uh, the Burbank Senior Center, and I was talking about my then experience as a prosecutor, and things were going swimmingly well until the last question, and it always is the last question, when I was asked about Prop 187. Uh, and I knew my answer was not going to be the right answer, uh, so I'm sure I sounded defensive in why I was against Prop 187. And when I was done, they were ready to tar and feather me. Um, and then flash forward, I lost that election. 94 was a very hard year for Democrats, and yeah, that time everywhere. it was uh, yeah. a lean Republican district. Two years later, I'm running for the state Senate. I'm invited back to the same senior center. Uh, this time we have a almost equally divisive ballot measure, Prop 201, the anti-affirmative action mm -hmm. ballot measure. And I was a Clinton mended, don't end it person. So almost in an exact replay of two years earlier, uh, I'm at the same senior center. Things are going swimmingly well until the last question, which is on Prop 201. But I decided to, to handle it very differently. And I said, uh, I'm against Prop 201. I'm going to tell you exactly why I'm against it. And if you just want someone who's going to come in here and tell you what you want to hear, I am not your guy. Uh, and they applauded me for disagreeing with them. And it taught me something very valuable that people don't necessarily have to agree with you, may not even want to agree with you all the time, but they do want to respect you. They do want to know that you have the conviction of your views. And and that that was a very important lesson I learned. But you're right. We do have these very – for a progressive state, we have some very conservative impulses. Uh, and we are you know, very amenable to both Democrats and Republicans at the top of the ticket. I thought you were going to say the lesson you learned was to take one less question at every, <laughs> a, at every event. Uh, you ran for Congress in 2000, um, and uh, you got elected in what was a, Repu a, 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 a Republican-leaning uh, district. Now you have in California – now you have, as you pointed out, quite a liberal district. You've got the Hollywood elite. Uh, all in your flock, uh, but uh, that I presume that district was awarded to you by uh, nonpartisan redistricting, which is something that California uh, embraced by initiative. Uh, how's that working? Because a lot of the country is looking for answers to to sort of gerrymandering and. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I think the the ungerrymander we did by independent commission, and, and you're exactly right, that's what produced the district that I represent now, has been a very positive thing uh, for the uh, state, and I think uh, it's a good model for the rest of the country to follow. Um, the concern I had at the time that the ballot measure came up is that Blue states were going to independent commissions. Red states were keeping their gerrymander. And on a national level, that has the prospect of freezing in one-party dominance, GOP dominance. Um, the, probably the single most important process reform I think we could have uh, to restore more uh, functionality to our government would be a national redistricting reform, uh, which wouldn't require amending the Constitution, but it would require Congress voting against its self-interest, which is almost as difficult. <laughs> uh, but you know, we're we're all looking for that single solution. There won't be a single solution to our present problems. 
But of all the process reforms that are mentioned from time to time and people talk about term limits and, you know, no budget, no pay and all that kind of stuff, the single most effective in my view would be a national requirement that uh, states enact uh, independent commissions to draw legislative lines. Yeah, well, the point you raise, I think, is the right one, which is you talk to people around the country about redistricting uh, political people, and they all say the same thing. We're not going to unilaterally disarm. So here in Illinois, there was a Democratic governor and Democratic legislature. Democrats gained four seats in the redistricting process. In other states, it went, uh, in many other states, because Republicans have been on the the upswing lately in uh, state legislative and gubernatorial races, it's gone the other way. But the result is you got you have these homogenous districts where um, moderate voices uh, tend not to do well. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I think we uh, in California have found uh, that not only has it been good governance, but it also hasn't diminished Democratic uh, representation the, the way that uh, I think some feared in a blue state that was ungerrymandering. Uh, and that that ought to be a good uh, signal to other states as well that um, you can't necessarily tell which way a ungerrymander will work except that it will benefit the public interest. And uh, I hope that these measures can gain some traction. And certainly in states that have a uh, a referendum process, I think there are great prospects for moving forward. Yeah, there are only twelve of those, I think. So it's uh, it's it's hard to do it. Uh, that way. Yes. Well, it is. Uh, it may be even harder to get Congress to do it. Uh, yeah. But yes. but one way or the other, they're all steps in the right direction. In Congress, you obviously came partly because of your prosecutorial experience, but I assume for other reasons as well, with an interest in national security issues where you've, uh, where you've focused. Was it that experience pr- prosecuting the Miller case that, that led you there? You know, in the state legislature, I had been very active on public safety issues, and uh, and so it was a natural fit when I got to Congress to work on not only public safety but also national security issues. Uh, and I, I found uh, I had a real interest in them. I remember, uh, indeed, when I was campaigning for Congress, I always used to give the same example of uh, the model that I wanted to follow, and that was Sam Nunn. Uh, you know, he had developed a, a military expertise, a defense expertise that came to be respected by people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and that was something that I wanted to try to emulate and uh, not necessarily on the same defense issues that he was known for. But I did realize when I got to Congress just how big a place it is and that if you really want to uh, make an impact, you have to figure out where can I add value? What's the what's the one area of the niche where I can help move the country forward or move uh, public policy forward. And I decided there really weren't that many Democrats who were uh, specializing in focusing on national security issues. Uh, they're often not that much rewarded by the base of our party. And uh, and so this was an area where I thought that if I devoted the time and uh, effort that I could add Value. Well, you also arrived at a, a, a fairly momentous time because it was only nine months after you uh, after you took office that nine eleven happened, which really transformed the debate. That's absolutely right. And in fact, I remember, uh, and it seems like such a completely different time now that uh, in two thousand and one, in the months before nine eleven, 
the the big political story of the day was the fact that the environment was the number one issue in the country. Environmentalists were, environmentalists were quite giddy that finally this issue had reached that level of public interest and concern. And of course, 9-11 obliterated that. Uh, and it's only uh, the, the perils of climate change that have forced that issue back up to not, not the same primacy, but awfully close. Uh, but uh, that was completely transformed by 9-11. You worked on, um, you've worked, uh, obviously, the, the thing, there are a whole bunch of protocols that grew up uh, in, uh, after, in the aftermath of 9-11. One of them has had to do with surveillance and giving the intelligence community the tools to try and interdict uh, terrorist attacks such as the one that we saw. You've been in the forefront of trying to rein in some of those uh, tools. Uh, talk a little bit about that. That that seems like one, at least for the moment, that you and the president uh, agree on. He, he doesn't seem entirely happy about surveillance these days. Well, in my view, on the Intelligence Committee and, and even before I was on the committee, uh, you know, our primary responsibility is figuring out how do we protect the country but also how do we protect our, our quality of life, our privacy, our civil liberties uh, go hand in hand with that. Uh, and as we oversee intelligence programs, I always think that there are several questions we need to ask. We need to ask uh, whether the program is constitutional, uh, whether it's effective. And even if it is both constitutional and effective in terms of improving our safety, uh, is it also structured in a way that minimizes any unnecessary impact on our privacy? Uh, and with some programs, I've concluded that's just not the case. And um, the telephone metadata program was was a good example of that. Uh, These are mass collections of telephone records. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, we had been gathering, we as a government had been gathering vast amounts of domestic call data. Now, it was only numeric data, so it wasn't the names of individuals. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, the, the contents of conversations. A lot of people thought during the debate that everybody's conversations were being scooped up. That wasn't the case at all. We were getting records from the phone companies, essentially, uh, that were digital uh, in the sense that uh, it was numbers connected to other numbers connected to so time and data So someone here w was connected to some known terrorist uh, or some su suspected terrorist overseas, then you'd go to court, you'd get an order, and you'd look further. Well, yes. The, the the primary benefit of having the database is that after the marathon uh, bombing in Boston, for example, you seize a suspect's phone and you want to know, are there other co-conspirators? Who have they been in touch with? You have a, a quick way to uh, plumb those numbers against the database and figure out who have they been in touch with and who have those people in turn been mm -hmm. in touch with. Um, but looking at that, it really wasn't necessary for the government to possess the data if it was possible technologically for us to run those numbers through the telephone companies when we so had they weren't need. that thrilled about that idea no they weren't they weren't and of course you know the, the telephone companies were taking their own kind of pr beating uh, as was the intelligence community uh with the disclosures of these programs uh, post snowden uh, so they wanted little or nothing to do with the intelligence community or any perception they were working in concert with the intelligence uh, community uh, but we ended up restructuring the program in a bill that, um, notwithstanding its complexity and the way that it uh, impacted uh, politically, uh, garnered very broad support. Uh, and, uh, and that was one of our you know, few 
very substantial bipartisan achievements as a Congress, mm-hmm. not even just in the intelligence During community, the Obama, but as a yeah. Congress, uh, yes, mm-hmm. in, in wrestling a really difficult, high-profile issue to the ground. I got to take a, another short break. We'll be right back with Congressman Adam Schiff. Another issue that you worked on, that you've worked on, is nuclear proliferation. And uh, I know this was a big interest of President Obama's uh, as well. Um, But we find ourselves today in a situation where the world seems uh, to be moving in the wrong direction in many ways. And, of course, North Korea is the great uh, concern right now. What what is your sense of uh, where we are relative to the North Koreans and what our options are? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, the the proliferation issue has been a keen concern of mine for a long time. Uh, and with respect to that issue, you know, I think we've made some very important progress in the Iran nuclear deal because at least for the next decade, uh, it has moved Iran uh, much farther away from the development of a nuclear weapon than it has moved Iran towards it. But North Korea has been a very different story. North Korea has continued to make progress on their nuclear program on their ballistic missile program. And when it reaches the point of being able to marry the two uh, and miniaturize a warhead, place it on an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of hitting the United States, uh, there's a real uh, danger to the country. Um, And how close do you think they are? Well, I think we'll reach that point during this president's term in office. Uh, So this is something this administration will have to confront, and obviously the Congress along with it. Uh, So uh, whether it's a year or four years from now, uh, I think we're going to be facing this if we can't somehow deter North Korea from what it's doing. In this respect, you know, I think the administration is is right on some things. And the president says he's going to take care of it. If China doesn't, he said he will. Um, You know, I, I agree with the administration that China is key. Uh, I'm not sure that I agree with them in terms of their policy of saber-rattling or doing away with strategic patience if it's being replaced by not-so-strategic impatience. Um, China is is a key to any kind of a diplomatic resolution uh, because we've sanctioned North Korea, uh, obviously, quite extensively, uh, as has much of the rest of the world, but China is the relief valve that has allowed commerce to go to North Korea, that has allowed uh, North Korea to remain economically afloat. Uh, And, of course, China has its own uh, deep concerns, and probably the predominant one is not the massive refugee flows uh, that people talk about, but rather having a collapse of the regime, a unified Korean peninsula allied to the West with a U.S. military presence there. That is China's worst nightmare, um, apart from a nuclear confrontation on the peninsula. Uh, so the question is, how do we motivate China uh, to crack down on North Korea uh, in a way that will really get the North's attention uh, and give us at least a chance of a diplomatic resolution? Uh, I think the way we do it is not by asking China and not by asking them nicely and not by threatening trade or whatnot. I think that uh, we're in a kind of a uh, situation of potentially mutual economic destruction with China. But rather by telling China, look, we're going to have to do things to defend ourselves that you're not going to want to see. Uh, if you're not willing uh, to do a lot more on North Korea, uh, we're going to have to accelerate the theater uh, missile defense system. We're going to have to increase our naval presence. We're going to have to increase uh, our support and our allies' support in their military buildup, all things that the Chinese do not want to see. Uh, these are the ways I think you increase the costs on China for maintaining 
the policy it's had over the last many years of uh, of a not so happy tolerance of the North Koreans' nuclear and missile programs. That still may not be enough, but it is a chance that we have to fully explore. Is there a reasonable military option here, given the fact that the Koreans are uh, they could annihilate Seoul, uh, the North Koreans, uh, in an instant? This is the problem. There is no good or even semi-good military option here, uh, because even without the use of nuclear weapons by North Korea, as you say, with conventional artillery, they could pretty well decimate Seoul. Uh, and you know, this young erratic leader uh, who is only concerned with his own, not only regime survival, but his own personal survival, uh, having executed a great many of his opponents, um, those threats uh, that the president is making are only going to go so far. And I think what the president is going to confront when he says uh, we're not going to tolerate this is, well, what happens when the North Koreans uh, set off another nuclear explosion? Uh, What happens when they do fire more missiles? Uh, What is the president prepared to do? Uh, And what comes next? And uh, I'm not sure the president has He's kind of drawn his own red line here. You know, he has done everything but call it a red line. And... Uh, and, of course, whether he calls it a red line or not, if it puts him in the position of either looking like a paper tiger because he can't fall through on what he said or having to take some military action that could unleash a whole chain of consequences, um, neither one of those is necessarily a uh, a good outcome. Uh, so I think it's why the president needs to stay off Twitter uh, or at least have it very heavily vetted uh, if he's going to talk about uh, potential confrontation with a nuclear power. Um but I, I think it also underscores uh, just why we need to explore every diplomatic possibility. Uh, and I do agree with uh, the administration that China, if there is a key, it's China. I would be remiss if I, I mentioned at the beginning that you've suddenly become uh, one of the best-known politicians in America, probably to your own bewilderment. Uh, but uh, we should talk about Russia and and, and your committee, uh, the House Intelligence Committee, has become the fulcrum of the House, the only House investigation really on on uh, uh, on what happened in our last election. You said that uh, you felt that, um, and let me quote here: "It's also uh, it is possible that all these events and reports are completely unrelated." Meaning. Trump folks who had contacts with Russians and so on, and nothing more than entirely unhappy coincidence. Yes, it is possible. Uh, You said, is it possible? But is it also possible, maybe more than possible, that they are not coincidental, not disconnected, and not unrelated, and that the Russians use the same techniques to corrupt U.S. persons that they employed in Europe and elsewhere, uh, and that they used to corrupt the FBI agent that you uh, put away? We simply don't know yet. And we owe it to the country to find out. Will we find out? Will your investigation yield answers? Uh, I certainly hope so. And and I think we are, after a very difficult period uh, of the last few weeks, I think we are back on track. We now have a new uh, Republican lead in Mike Conaway, who is a very serious guy and I think committed to conducting the investigation uh, in a joint way uh, that we really need to do. Um, I, I think the, the single you know, the most important thing I can can communicate about the investigation is why people ought to care about it. Um, The administration has made every effort to say this is simply an effort to relitigate the election, which it is not by any means. 
But I do think during the campaign, uh, Democrats need to do some introspection about the fact that it was even then pretty widely known that the mm-hmm. Russians were involved. The Russians were responsible. They were hacking. They were dumping. Uh, and indeed, when Donald Trump in late July of last year at a press conference said, hey, Russians, if you're listening, hack Hillary Clinton's emails and you'll be richly rewarded by the press. He wasn't saying that out of the blue. He was saying that because it was already the public understanding that the Russians were involved with this. Where I think Democrats really fell down on the job is we failed to persuade the country why they should care. Um, and that's not a mistake we can afford to make again. Um, and, and probably one of the most valuable things I think that can come out of our investigation is an appreciation for what the Russians did, how they did that, certainly if they had the help of U.S. persons affiliated with the Trump campaign, but with an eye to how do we inoculate ourselves from this in the future because one of the key conclusions of the intelligence community is that the Russians will do this again. This was not a one-off, and indeed, of course, they're doing this right now in Europe. Uh, So understanding how they operate uh, and inoculating ourselves uh, is going to be vital to the health of our democracy. One step that terrifies me that the Russians did not undertake, but they easily could have and may the next time, is the documents that they dumped that were damaging to Hillary Clinton were by and large authentic documents. They may have all been authentic documents, but nothing will stop them from altering documents in the future. And were they to have, were they to have dumped uh, a handful of uh, fakes among the originals or even um, taken – a real document with two paragraphs and added a third paragraph suggesting some kind of illegality by uh, Hillary Clinton, you could imagine how difficult, if not impossible, that would be to disprove in the final weeks of of a campaign and just how enormous that impact could be. The only way we fight that is not just by cyber defense alone, which is never going to be enough. Uh, It has to be by informing the public and inoculating the public so that they care more about the fact that this is the product of a foreign intervention than they do what is said in a stolen document. Uh, this is part of the reason why I feel so strongly about the investigation and why I feel so strongly there has to be a real public component to it because it's the only way we defend ourselves in the future. You uh, said to the consternation of some in uh, late March that uh, you had seen evidence that was, uh, circum- uh, that was circumstantial evidence of collusion that was the kind of evidence that a grand jury investigation uh, would want to uh, consider. Uh, and the inference was that there were people potentially associated with the Trump campaign who were involved in the planning or execution of this, or at least had awareness of this, uh, of the hacking and the release of information. If they did, as a, I'm asking you this as an old prosecutor, what crime would they have committed? Well, when I was using that, I was using it as an analogy and described it as an analogy at the time. And and I was actually doing a contrast. uh, And I was saying, this is the kind of information you would present to a grand jury at the beginning of an investigation, not the kind of evidence you would present to a trial jury to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, But but, if there is ultimately evidence uh, that is put forward or uh, that comes out as a result of the investigation that shows what I have described as collusion or what Director Comey uh, described as coordination uh, when he revealed his own investigation. 
uh, it could violate any number of uh, of laws. Uh, um, certainly, the hacking and the theft of these documents is a crime. Anybody who aided and abetted uh, that would be guilty of the, that same crime. Would knowledge of it alone be a crime? Uh, knowledge of it alone is not a crime. Indeed, uh, if it were, then the president's own statements at that July conference, if they were demonstrating knowledge, uh, would have been a, an offense. And they, they were not. They were offensive, mm-hmm. but they were not an, a mm-hmm. criminal offense. Um, but if there was you know, some uh, active participation in, in a conspiracy to uh, steal information, to uh, exert foreign influence over uh, an American election, there are any number what of What about knowledge of the release laws. of that information through WikiLeaks? You know, uh, I think knowledge of others committing a crime is not a crime in and of itself. Uh, even, you know, sort of the verbal um, encouragement uh, of a crime as we were getting from Donald Trump, candidate Donald Trump, mm-hmm. in and of itself not a crime. When does it become a crime? Well, I, I think that when someone uh, becomes an aider and a better uh, in some way, someone takes uh, material steps or reaches an agreement with those involved in the crime to be participants in the crime, uh, then then you start to see criminal liability attaching. But again, I want to underscore uh, yeah. none of this is prejudging that that's where the investigation will lead. I have no idea where we'll end up. Uh, but I do I do feel, uh, obviously, it would be uh, more than negligent of us as a Congress not to fully investigate what the Russians did. In the midst of this, as you uh, uh, implied a reference before, you uh, lost your chairman, at least for purposes of this investigation, uh, Devin Nunes, who's one of your colleagues from California, uh, because he went to the White House uh twice, once to look at documents and the next day to uh, talk to the president and inform the press, uh, uh, the media there, that he had seen documents that concerned him that suggested that uh, whether uh, incidentally or not, uh, some members of the Trump transition were unmasked, they were surveilled, unmasked, and so on. Um, You got called down to the White House Uh, to look at the same information. There are two things I want to ask you about that. The first is, on that visit, you spoke with the president and spent some time with the president. What was that like? Well, the whole circumstances leading up to that were quite surreal. Uh, You know, the the chairman's visit to the White House and the, the whole evening excursion, for lack of a better description, cast a real cloud over the integrity of our investigation. And uh, it's something I felt very important to speak out against because it was impairing our ability to do an impartial job. Uh, And and ultimately, it led to his stepping aside, which I think was the right decision for him to make. Uh, We now have an opportunity for a reset of the investigation, which I think is very, very positive uh, with the new Republican League, Mike Conaway, who uh, I have a lot of confidence. He's a very serious guy. Um, but not long, uh, well, uh, during this uh, interval, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I was uh, sitting in my office uh, in the Intelligence Committee watching Sean Spicer uh, talk about the investigation and uh, disclose that he invited me to the White House to come view the documents that the chairman had seen. It was Sean Spicer, not Melissa McCarthy, let me be clear. <laughs> yes, it was. Okay. It, it was. Uh, at least I think it was. Uh, <laughs> And uh, he said, we've just sent the congressman a letter inviting him to the White House. And I literally said to my staff, what letter? And somebody walked in my office, this letter. And uh, 
It had so literally just arrived. It had literally just arrived. Uh, and so I went to the White House the following day and uh, was invited to uh, to step into the Oval Office before I reviewed the documents. And we were having a fight uh, at the White House compound over whether my staff that had accompanied me, my staff director, would also have access to the documents. And uh, so the president— Who has clearance to see— Highly classified document. Yes, he comes to all the Gang of Eight meetings, and we have a policy of not going to view classified material without our staff being present. And the, the problem our chair had was a perfect illustration of why he that didn't. rule is sound. Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, so I was invited to uh, come into the Oval Office to say hello to the president, and uh, he was you know, quite affable and asked me if I was getting everything I need. Uh, and I said, actually, I'm not, uh, and described the problem and he made it clear he was perfectly fine with my staff director having access. In fact, he was perfectly fine with all the committee members having access, uh, to which I could hear a lot of groaning in the background from his staff. Uh, but after— Who was some, in there with you? Yes. With Priebus and— uh, Yes, uh, Reince Priebus uh, and several other staff members. Um, and eventually we got it worked out, and my staff director was able to view, review the documents with me. But— uh, you know, we made polite conversation for about 10 minutes, uh, largely about an infrastructure bill, uh, about the cost of prescription medication. I was happy, frankly, to talk about anything other than the Russia investigation. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I had met him once before many years earlier, uh, and much as on that prior uh, occasion, found him very engaging, uh, but, uh, but obviously um, not engaging enough for me to overcome very serious uh, policy and other differences that we have. How long is this investigation going to run? When do you think we'll get the answers that you suggested the investigation should provide? You know, this is the most difficult question, I think, that we get about the investigation. Uh, because on the one hand, we feel a real sense of urgency to get this done. Uh, it's not something that, that we can afford or should have uh, be protracted for no reason. At the same time, if it's not thorough, it's not of much value. And this is not an easy thing for us to investigate. It's a global investigation. Uh, in part, it involves information that is held by a hostile power that doesn't really want to share. Uh, what and how much staff do you have to conduct this global investigation? Very limited. I would say uh, on our committee, uh, we probably have seven staff who are dedicated to the investigation. And the Senate uh, Intel Committee has about the same number of staff. For something of this magnitude, that is a uh, a pitifully small number of staff and resources devoted to it. When you were on the Benghazi committee, how, was it a similar number of staff? Uh, you know, it may have been a similar number of staff, but that was the that was the only thing those staff were focused on. Our staff, we we have a day job to do of overseeing some of the largest, most important agencies in the country. Agencies that, by the way, are for the most part, uh, although not always, pretty good at keeping secrets. And so that oversight responsibility hasn't gone away. Uh, the responsibility of making sure that we have the intel we need on ISIS and al-Qaeda uh, and the latest bomb threat involving aviation hasn't gone away. And the threat by uh, Iran and North Korea hasn't gone away. So this is an added responsibility. One of the reasons why I have been so adamant about our work being supplemented by an independent commission is it not only has the merit of being taken away from the political realm and being uh, held immune from political uh, interference in any way, but it also would have the staffing and resources devoted to this that really merit uh, that, that are met. Clearly that's here. not going to happen. Uh, you know, at this point it's not happening. 
but you never know. Things I never thought would happen a week ago have happened and depends probably on how many twists and turns the investigation takes and if the pressure becomes too great. Uh, it may get to the point uh, where the speaker decides, you know, we are better off uh, in the majority having an independent commission so that we can say we gave it to the independent commission, they have got it, now can we please talk about our tax cuts? Uh, if they get to that point, then we'll have a commission. Well, I, uh, uh, we will, we shall see. I, I'm betting against that, but I'm also what I'm hearing you say here is that uh, if one is looking forward to the conclusion of this investigation and has a vacation plan in the next couple of weeks, you're safe to go ahead and enjoy it. You are definitely safe to go ahead and enjoy your your vacation. All right, Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for your service. Thank you for being here today, and thanks for coming to the Institute of Politics. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.